Welcome, everyone. This is Jeffrey Geisner for the Obligations of Memory podcast, part of the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. This is part two of our interview with Howard Kaplan. And Howard is going to spend this interview telling us a little bit about his process of writing. He's a well-known um, writer of seven titles. He's currently working on a new book, which will launch uh, in the future. And we're gonna spend our time talking about one of his most famous books, which was made into a movie. Actually, it was written in 1977 and 40 years later, it was made into a feature film. I absolutely love the Damascus cover. That's the book title and the name of the movie. And you can find that streaming on Hulu and Stars. So welcome, Howard, to part two. Thank and, you. And still I'll, here? Yep, still here. And I want to kind of start with you and say, okay, let's, you're a consummate researcher, and I want to talk to you about your process, because I know a lot of our audience members are want to be authors, are authors, are published, some are self-published. So we're going to kind of cover a lot of their different areas about your writing craft, your your and so we'll use Damascus cover as the book of choice. So why don't you give us a little bit of background so our audience knows more about you through that book? Uh, it's my first published novel. It was published when I was 27. Uh, as a child of Holocaust survivors, I think I felt strongly that I wanted to write novels about, initially about Jewish communities in peril. I wrote one about Syria. There were 75,000 Jews in Syria at one time. Then I later wrote one about Russian Jews. Then I turned to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for three novels. It was a bigger problem. <laughs> Didn't get solved so easily. <laughs> um, you ask about research and stuff. I don't think I've told the story maybe ever, certainly not in a long time. I wrote the book, The Damascus Cover, without a vast amount of research, but the storyline was very compelling. And I got an agent and I ultimately sold it to Dutton, a major New York publishing house. I went to meet with them and the editor pulled out a book called Harry's Game by Gerald Seymour. I don't know, it's a very well-known book. It was about the Irish-British struggle and it's set greatly in Ireland. He says, I want you to rewrite your novel and I want you to do for Syria what this author did for Ireland. Hmm. I wanna smell it. I wanna feel it. I want to feel like I'm walking through Damascus the way he is walking through Belfast. So I read the book, I saw what he meant. Then I went looking around. I'd been in Damascus very briefly for less than a day. And what, uh, when what year I, is this? Uh, I was in Damascus during my junior abroad in Jerusalem. I had a friend, we went to the Arab countries together via Cyprus. We went to Lebanon. It was my first, my first time in Lebanon. I was in Lebanon again. You asked me off camera a little bit about process. And a lot of it is 
I just go to look at places and then the novel kind of comes from that. And I was fortunate in 1981 that I had some connections in Israel and they allowed me to go on a press tour during the Israeli war in Lebanon in 1981. It was a day tour, meaning we went in through the Northern border up to Sidon, back down the coast, and then to what was then the Ansar prison camp. The Israelis had built a tent prison camp in Lebanon, just north of the border for prisoners. And again, I wanted to write books of reconciliation. So I have a characters who meet an Israeli who goes in to meet a major Palestinian fighter in the Ansar prison camp. And from that came the novel Bullets of Palestine, which is my third book. But to answer your question, I went to Beirut with my friend from the Hebrew University. This was 1971 now, so this was four years before civil war in Lebanon. So the country was gorgeous. It was the Paris of the Middle East. And we went to the American University of Beirut to meet an American we had heard about who was on his junior year abroad. And he had a Syrian roommate. And the roommate said, you can take a shared taxi, what in Israel would be called the Sherut, from Beirut to Damascus. And the, it's like 50 miles and it'll give you a visa at the border. So we did that. And then we went to the Jewish ghetto in Damascus. And my friend noticed we had been in the great Omayyad mosque and somebody who he'd seen in the mosque was following us by the Jewish ghetto. So we went back and left the country because we were afraid. Uh, but I wrote a little piece. I have a blog at the Times of Israel because in the film adaptation, Jonathan Rhys Meyers, the British actor, and Jürgen Prochnow, the German actor, are standing outside the Jewish ghetto in Damascus. We filmed in Casablanca in Morocco, but it's a stand-in for Damascus. And I thought, here's my life 40 years, 50 years later. I was standing outside the Jewish ghetto in Damascus. And now <clears throat> Reese Myers and Jürgen Prochnow, who people probably know, your older audience will know, was famous for being the U-boat commander in Das Boot, you know, uh, many years ago. I had Nazis in the novel. So Prochnow played one of the Nazis in the film adaptation. Uh, so fortunately going back to the book was already under contract. They didn't pay me very much because they thought it needed a rewrite, but I was happy to have any kind of contract from a major publisher. And I found a book called Mirror to Damascus by a British traveler who had walked through every street in Damascus and described it. So I could steal from him a little bit. And now I find with the internet, you can Google images and they'll put you down anywhere. You know, to the, you know, to the insides of a mosque in, in the countryside of Lebanon, mm -hmm. if you want to describe it. So 
the modern technology has made it easier for fiction writers in a lot of ways. And I use that all the time. I'm constantly on the internet looking at images of things I want to so what describe. Do you what do you type in so our audience would know what you know? What you, know? It's, you know, sort of the advantages, because I wrote this first book about Syria and I'm writing another one. You just kind of keep reading. So for example, there is a checkpoint between Jordan and Syria called the Nasib Crossing. You just type in Nasib Crossing images and you start getting pictures of this. In the middle of the desert between Jordan, that's just an example of how even the most obscure things you can find yep. easily. Thank you. So they helped me, the Dutton people helped me change my understanding of how to write suspense novels in that these great descriptions were vital. So when I started writing Bullets of Palestine and the Spies Gamble and To Destroy Jerusalem, all of which take place in some part in the Palestinian areas, it was before I relied on the internet. So I would just go, I would get people to take me. By then I was already sort of developing a reputation as being even-handed and fair to all sides. So I would get very good reviews in the Jerusalem Post and in Al-Fajar, the Palestinian paper, or Sada Al-Watan, the North American Arab paper. So by then I built up enough of a reputation that people would take me places. So I went to Gaza uh, in the 90s, I believe. Uh, a lot of these places you just kind of go for the day. The Middle East is small, like when I was in Lebanon with the Israeli army, they didn't want, during the war, they didn't want us staying overnight, press people. So. We got up, they took us to a guest house near the Lebanon border in the north of Israel on kibbutz, get it up at five in the morning, have breakfast, and as soon as it's light, you're in, and you're back at Rosh Nikra on the Israeli side before sunset, you know, so. But you could see a lot, and I take pictures, I use camera. And this was even the days, a lot of it, Bolts of Palestine was before digital cameras. So you just used up film. And one of the things I found out, it's kind of funny, my son wanted to see them, but I had all these, I always took Kodachrome slides and I had them stored in these Kodak, Kodak carousel boxes in a closet that I never went into. They're perfectly preserved for decades because no light got in and somehow unlike photographs, which fade, even if they're in a book, slides don't fade. So I just got lucky. So I'll give you a tip. Go to Costco. They digitize those carousels. Yes, I have. I've digitized, I digitized a whole lot of them. My son and I went through them. Uh, he's 29 now, 28, because he wanted them saved. So I was a little parsonious and what I wanted. There was so many of them over so many decades. But we have quite a lot of them online, particularly going back to Poland with my father, who was a Holocaust survivor, so I have all those uh, photos. Okay, so you researched, and so how did you, how long did it take you to write Damascus cover? You know, everything seems to go, take longer since. 
I was living in an apartment in Westwood in LA. I was going to graduate school in education to do a doctorate at UCLA, which I never finished. And fortunately, the classes were all, the earliest class began at 4 p.m. because they were geared towards school teachers who were doing graduate work. Mm-hmm. Go four to six and six to nine. So I would write all day. And I wrote the Damascus cover in about nine months. I think it's the shortest I ever was able to write. Now I don't remember. I think it took me three months. I do remember. After I got the contract and Dutton gave me those kind of parameters, they also wrote a letter with some plot suggestions. And I liked them. You know, I was not someone who thought my way was better. They liked that I thought that way. And the book landed on the LA Times bestseller list, you know, uh, for three months. So if we, pretty- can, if we can compare and contrast then to now and your ability to go to Dutton then as to the ability for you to be a first-time author and try to get published, what are, the, what are the traps? Well, the difference is Dutton was a small, actually, I forgot about this. I haven't thought about this in a long time. The book was not sold to Dutton. It was sold to something called the Saturday Evening Post Press. I know it. I know it well. So the Saturday Evening Post, which was a magazine, I think it was a magazine, not a newspaper, right? Yep. Had a press, a publishing division. They bought the book. And very shortly thereafter, Dutton bought them. Uh, And my editor was, I guess, a very smart guy. He was made the editor-in-chief of Dutton when at the acquisition. hmm. So I actually benefited from all that. But the point is, all these publishing houses were independent then. Dutton was its own entity. Uh Now Dutton was bought by Viking which in its own sense was bought by Penguin in Great Britain. So to save costs, where there were, when I started, I don't know, called 30 or 40 publishers, there's now four. They're all conglomerates, but the good news from all that is you can still make independent submissions within the divisions. So even Penguin, Viking, and Dutton are all a new American library, which is their paperback arm, Signet paperbacks used to be, I don't know what they're called now. Uh, you can still submit directly to Dutton. The agents can submit to Dutton. And I don't know how they do it actually now, because I don't know if they can submit to Dutton and Viking at the same time, because they're the same, company, but all of them are like that. There's like four blocks of publishers and everybody is a random house, Knopp, you know, I think Bantam is one group and they're owned by Bertelsmann, well, they were owned, I'm a little behind on some of this stuff, which is a big German publishing conglomerate. So, you know, stuff still gets published. 
It's interesting because I was just speaking to a, you may know this gentleman, the name is Peter Kupfer from LA. He just wrote a book and he was published by, was just and published by a company in the Netherlands. So it's not just that, you know, you can go anywhere in the world today, which I think is probably part of- Well, you actually could have done that in its time. I think the Damascus cover was translated into seven languages. Your agent used to, what you do when you sell um, foreign language rights is take the Netherlands. I was, the Damascus cover was published in Dutch. Um, you sell the foreign, the Dutch language rights to a publisher in the Netherlands, and then they own it. It's like the film. The film people own the film rights. They can do whatever they want. The Dutch publisher owns the translation rights. They hire a translator. They translate it. They create their own cover. And it's their book. And they send you a couple copies, you know, in, in Dutch. That's about all you hear. So if I was a young, or if I was not a young, let's say I'm 63, which is my age, I'm a little younger than you are. And I'm right, I want to write a book about my, my parents' story, which is compelling. What's the, what's the one, two, three pieces of advice you would tell me? Well, so here's kind of the good news and bad news. Self-publishing has opened up tremendous opportunities, for particularly for people who have a following. That's kind of the bad news. The hard part of self-publishing is selling. It's very easy to produce from a word file, a digital book, mm -hmm. and in self-publishing, people may know or people may not know. When you order a paperback on Amazon, if it's self-published, if it doesn't come from a major publisher, it's print on demand. And they're so efficient that if you order the book on Monday, you may get it by Thursday and you don't know that it was printed on Tuesday, you know? And then unless you really smell it, because sometimes it has that new smell to it. The problem is selling. The statistics of self-published books are daunting. There are sometimes 1,000 to 2,000 published a day. So everybody is suddenly a writer. And why not? But selling them, like I was just on some mystery Facebook group, and somebody had written to the group, I wrote my book and I've sold 250 copies. How am I going to sell it? The real answer is you're not, unless you have an outlet, meaning you have Twitter followers, you're, you're known as a psychologist, you have your own kind of brand or marketing tools. Otherwise, it is very hard to get any kind of media attention. So how do you do it? For a, well, I already have a little bit of a, I can self-publish if I need to, because I have a little bit of a following with, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And 
everything builds on each other. You know, I have a film with major actors. So if I hire a PR person, they can pitch people. This is the author of the film, so-and-so. Now, do, you, do all of your books publish at this with, with Dutton? No, I've had, first two books were done with Dutton. The third was a different publisher. And the last two I self-published myself. Oh. I didn't get offers from publishers that were compelling. And the upside of self-publishing is your royalty schedule is much higher. When you sell a book, you're gonna get about 15% royalties of the purchase price. As self-publishing, you get something like 80. Right. So there's a big difference. But again, it really, you know, it's hard to sell. But on the other hand, people think you get a publishing contract with Random House or Simon & Schuster, that means you're gonna sell a lot of books. It doesn't, they, you, they still have to promote. And they're counting more and more on you to promote it now. Right. It's, sort of, want, it's sort of like the music business. Well, I think it has a lot to do with the internet and social media because people have outlets to promote. So they'll pay you a nominal amount. They'll publish the book. And then there used to be, for example, it's fun, it's interesting, it failed. There used to be, at least in California, I don't know if it was nationwide, something called Crown Books, Crown Bookstores. And they were all the rage for the while. I couldn't tell you what decade even maybe the 90s, maybe. What did they do? They only carried bestsellers. Yeah. They were really small and they made their money on selling bestsellers in high volume. And what happened? The company went bankrupt in the end. And what was, re what was replaced by? Barnes and Noble megastores. Mm -hmm. So the demand of people was such that they wanted varieties of books and not just That's what, yeah. the latest, you know, romance bestseller or Hollywood memoir. So are you giving the, the writer of today uh, a thumbs up that it's something to do? Or are you I think that, that the future is what? I think you have to write a really terrific book. And you should do that. And you should aspire to do that. And I think there is always a good chance for somebody who writes something extraordinary. <clears throat> and it's just hard to know what's going to break through. Apparently, I haven't read it, but there's this book, The Tattooist of Art of Auschwitz. People love it. It's, it's a very big bestseller. Um, so must, I'm counting on the fact that it was done really well. So I think that's what you have to do. I think you have to ignore all the noise of what's the market like, what's publishing, what I'm gonna do, and try to write something extraordinary. Okay, and then, and so that's, that's, tell us a little bit about your process. So you decide on the topic. Well, no, sometimes it's the opposite. I wander around and then I come up with a topic. Uh, like I went into Lebanon, as I 
said. When I wanted to write The Spy's Gamble, which also is a fairly recent book, um, I went to Israel. I started talking to people, talking to friends, what's going on here. Then I went again into the Palestinian territories with Palestinians. And I came up, for example, then you, you come up with things that they tell you. For example, I was in something called the Alamari refugee camp in Ramallah. It's right in the city. And I was able to get Palestinians to take me through camp. So one guy tells me, they stand, the soldiers come in patrol. It's a cat and mouse game in these refugee camps because the soldiers don't want the Palestinians to have weapons. The Palestinians want to have weapons. So the Israelis come in in the middle of the night, if they have a tip, and try to confiscate weapons or manufacturing. They, they're able to make their own little submachine guns. So they tell me, this Palestinian, that they get on the rooftops and they drop small refrigerators at the patrolling Israeli soldiers who are most likely 18 and 19 years old. And this is about the last place they want to be at 3 a.m. in the morning. And I want to hear that again. They've dropped small refrigerators. Refrigerators from the rooftops on the line of Israeli patrolling soldiers who are patrolling and bursting into the camp at three in the morning. I just, for example, on Facebook, got a new Facebook friend who is the director of a Quaker school in Ramallah. So he tells me from his apartment window, he can see the, the Israeli soldiers going into the Alamari camp at three in the morning, the firefights. So the Palestinians tell me they drop refrigerators, as I said, on these soldiers, either to hurt them or to maim them or to get them to flee. So I try to imagine in this book, The Spies Gamble, what it's like for both sides. What it's like for an 18 year old Israeli who's just out of high school, patrolling a camp with a helmet and if a refrigerator comes hurling at him from the roof. And I tried to imagine what it's like for a Palestinian who's roused from sleep at three in the morning by Israelis bursting into his refugee camp to look for weapons. So he goes up on the roof to try to drop a refrigerator that they've stored up there for this purpose on them. And that's my interest in the Israeli-Palestinian struggle rather than trying to demonize the other side, the way my parents as Holocaust survivors or as Holocaust sufferers were demonized by Hitler's minions. And for example, in The Spies Gamble, we talk, a friend of mine who helped create Birthright helped me with this. I talk about 
So how do I, part of the process, I go sit with my friend who's a hugely honored educator in Israel, who's the chairman emeritus of Hillel. And he is an interesting guy. He lectures to Israeli cadets. You can't become an officer in the Israeli army without hearing one of his lectures about pluralism. And his favorite line is, we don't have to be uniform as Israelis to be unified. So he'll go into the Israeli army base in Hebron, which is protecting the settlers, to talk to them about what they're doing morally in that base. So he and I talked, and I wrote a scene in Spice Gamble about it about what does it mean to be a powerless people as the Jews were powerless in Europe? And what are the moral responsibilities when you now have the power? And he made a point to me that I didn't see. He said, you have to have power because look what happened to the Germans when they were stripped of power after World War I. Once they got power, they went insane. So we have to guard too as Israelis as a powerless, Jewish peoplehood of so many decades, centuries, how do we then use the power when we are the dominant force in the region and we control refugee camps? And it's a terrible dilemma, you know, because nobody wants to be in that conundrum, either side. The Israelis don't want to be in the camp at 3 a.m. and the Palestinians don't want them to be in the camp at 3 a.m. But the failure of political solutions dictate that this thing continues. So I will go into these areas, listen to these stories, and then start to form a novel around what I've seen. So for me, you know, everybody has different, I'm in awe of TV writers who are showrunners who can come up with 13 storylines for a season. For me, the hard part is coming up with an idea and the easy part is sitting a year or two and working on it. Once I have the idea, nothing bothers me. I just how get up you, with them. How do you determine the chapters? I don't know, you know, sometimes, I had, a, I had an editor who said, your chapters are too long. <laughs> you need to cut them up because people's attention are, you know, made by chapters that, you know, but one of the greatest title, things- Do you do a do title? Do you, sorry, do you do a title before you- I'm build? always bad at titles. They always come late. They come late. Some of the chapters have titles. Uh, I think of the Damascus cover, they have dates. So you can follow the progression of the story. Uh, nothing better than reading. I learned a lot from Hemingway. I don't really care if you like his relationship with women or not, or his macho-ness. He knew how to write a chapter and he knew how to, for example, there's a little trick as a writer. I think this is in The Movable Feast, which is this book about Paris. This is a very useful, he said, it's helpful not to finish a scene in your day's writing. 
Stop writing in the middle of your seat. Then when you come the next day to pick up and continuing, you've got a place to start. You're not struggling with a new yeah, white piece of paper. Yeah. Right. You're right in the middle, you're there. And often, if you sleep decently, you're refreshed. So that was a good trick. And I would read the best people in the field that you're writing in. For me, suspense novels, there's nobody like John le Carré. There is an American writer, it's kind of serendipity. Some people make it and some people less, who's a terrific suspense American writer called Charles McCary. Not nearly as well known, known within certain circles, but also probably the best American spy writer. I mean, there are people who write suspense books like John Grisham or Dan Brown. These guys who are very good at what they're doing. You can learn from them too. Dan Brown always basically has a hook at the end of every chapter. He leaves everything on a cliffhanger. So, so when we're getting again close to our end here, but what will you consider your writing historical fiction or just fiction? What do you hear? What when you I know, the term historical fiction? It's a really so, interesting question, and I ask myself that often. My books are heavy in history and heavy in description. And people remark, the reviewers, both customers and newspapers remark about that. So I'm not sure, I'll give you a you know, funny example. My son interviewed for a private school and they asked him, what's a historical fiction book he wrote, he read. So he kind of stumbled. And I remember when he was 11 years old, we ran out of books in Italy and I bought The Agony and the Ecstasy. So even though I didn't want to chime in, I chimed in. So he later told me he was thinking about The Chosen, which is kids during World War II. And he wasn't sure if that was a historical novel or not. And I told him, I'm not sure either. But we know The Agony and the Ecstasy, the Michelangelo one qualified. So that worked out. So I don't really know, you know, if I fit in that, in a category or that category. You know, I try to write serious books with moral conundrums and dilemmas. Uh, and as you mentioned, I'm heavy on history and description. And what's and, left on your bucket list? Uh, you know, I don't know. I seem to be able to only go one place at a time. Like I'm working on this book now about the Syrian civil war, which I mentioned in the other half of the broadcast because I started it before the Ukrainian war. And it was, there's vast parallels between the two, both in terms of the, the destruction of civilian life and civilians and the fact that the West let Putin run rampant in Syria it was a mistake Obama made. It's not a question of Republican or Democrat, but Obama drew a red line in the sand and said, if we use chemical weapons, that's gonna be something crossing that line. A year later, Assad used chemical weapons and killed a thousand people 
civilians in eastern Damascus, and we didn't do anything. As such, we enabled Putin to go into Syria, build military bases, and wipe out the resistance. And Assad is still there. So now comes to Crimea and Ukraine, and Putin thinks the West is weak. They didn't stop me in Syria. They're not going to stop me in, in Crimea. And they didn't. And finally, in the Ukraine, we're doing something. Almost surprisingly, but maybe not that the devastation is so vast, but the devastation in, demand, in Syria was vast too. We just have some bias, you know, Middle Easterners are not as high on our pecking order as Ukrainians who maybe have vast food and other reserves that we need. So I'm happy to see they're trying to stop Putin in the Ukraine. So hopefully the novel will, this one's called The Syrian Sunset, when I finish it, will be an enlightening part of what we missed and where we could have. I hope when you do finish it, we can get together again. You can come on to our program. We'll do another podcast together. Thanks, Howard, for all of the insight. And I'm sure our membership is so appreciative of your collective wisdom over the last how many years, 40 years of doing what you're doing? I'm on Facebook. I generally answer messages. I think I'm full with friends past the limit. But if you direct message me on Facebook, I'll answer. Good. Well, so, well and so it's you know. Howard Kaplan. So thanks again for being part of the second part of our Obligations of Memory podcast. Have a great afternoon. Thank you.